Good morning, and welcome to episode 496 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballPerspectus.com, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Baseball Prospectus, and he is Ben Lindbergh, who, what do you, uh, do you have to wear a suit and tie tomorrow to go to your first day at work? Uh, no, we're recording this on at, Sunday. At yeah, uh, no, I I will wear my normal attire and work from home as usual. Wait. Oh, okay. So you will not. You will you ever? Do you guys have an office? Do you ever there, go in? This is yes. one of the most common questions I. Um, <laughs> but I, of course, work for, you know, a, a smaller a smaller shop. So right. I have uh, answered so that question. Have an yeah, I've answered that question about baseball perspectives many times. There is no office. There is an office that I could make use of if I would like to at some point. Maybe I will. What's that like? I don't know. I haven't been there. Huh. Uh, interesting. You've never even been in there, huh? You? It's in New York, though? Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, ESPN, ABC offices, Grantland people are there, 538 people are there sometimes. Think there's a cafeteria? Probably. Yeah, probably. You <laughs> you seem like a guy who eats a lot of cafeteria type food based on my I do. A lot of diner food. Experience with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um so one thing first off, uh it seems like the uh there's a clear consensus, including among the Angel family, uh that Roger Angel's last name is pronounced Angel. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. I did include the, the so sound good. clip of the robot yeah. voice pronouncing Angel at the end of the last episode. Yeah. Although that was not an authoritative sound clip. That was just a sound clip that we found. There were hundreds of names pronounced by that robot, and that robot could have been wrong. Mm-hmm. However, uh, what Roger Angel's like uh, college roommate's son or something like that <laughs> yeah. uh, weighed in on the Facebook page and let us know, or maybe on Twitter, and let us know. Uh, that Angel himself pronounces it as Angel, and there are a few things that I'm. Uh, there are there are few things I'm willing to tell people. I'm unwilling to tell people they are wrong about, but the pronunciation of their own name uh, <laughs> is one of those. So. So the takeaway here uh, is that you should never trust Carson Sestouli. Yeah, if that's how you pronounce his name. <laughs> right. Who would even know? Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, Ben, we uh, we should probably talk about Brady Aiken, but I don't. Um, I'm not ready to talk about Brady Aiken. Nick Falaris is going to be filing a barn burner of a piece about mm-hmm. the Aiken situation uh, to publish on Monday, hopefully. And I actually don't want to say anything that is going to be um, you know dumb and uninformed when I know that I'm having such uh, great content delivered to me shortly. So. Um, I think that we should wait a day to talk about Brady Aiken. I mean, we've we've waited we've waited till now. We can certainly wait until tomorrow. Nothing's going to likely change. Is that okay with you? That is okay with me. Plus, we had a podcast you about Aiken a- on Thursday. That was before the the news actually happened. That was before. But but yes. Yeah, yeah. But the the news happened. Do you have a? Can I just add? Do you have a knee jerk reaction? Do you have any sort of feeling? Uh. About it. I mean, I've been disconnected from the internet completely this weekend so i haven't really given it much thought but i would i would think that if they were willing to to give him five was it that was reportedly the offer that they upped it to toward the end of the negotiating window if they were willing to give him five you'd think 
maybe it would have been worth it just to give him the 6.5 and not not shoot down your whole draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This whole Astros thing has, has turned dark in a hurry. <laughs> it has, yeah. You know, it yeah. was... I mean, even there were there were there were cracks in the uh, consensus about them, I guess, over the last year, and, and it's been growing. And but but even you know a month ago there was that the Sports Illustrated cover about them, and you know I'm sure that it still felt pretty okay to be an Astros employee. I don't know what it's like to be an Astros employee right now, but there's just something really dark about like having back to back number one overall picks and having it turn into. Um, you know, Mark Appel and nothing else at this point. And there's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it feels weird. It feels, this sort of feels like, and it's not analogous, analogous mm-hmm. to the situation entirely, but uh, it sort of feels like we're watching a large scale version of the Red Sox bullpen by committee experiment of uh-huh. like 10 years ago happen in, uh, it's like in Inception, right? Where the time is, you know, slowed down because we're in a different situation. And so, like, we're watching something that's going at a much slower, bigger speed. We're in, like, the second layer right now, I think, uh, <laughs> compared to what the the um, Red Sox bullpen by committee thing was. But there's just, like, you get this feeling that, that I don't know, this will be, uh, it's shaping up to be something that people might, that might run from for many years. I don't know. We'll see. Mm, yeah. Still... Lots of time to see how it goes, but you find a lot of Inception references lately. Did you recently Two. watch Inception? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, but I would imagine that one led to the other. Yeah, the, probably the first one. But I watched a lot of Snowpiercer lately, though. Good, very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much, good stuff. Much better than Inception, I would say. Hmm. Mm, yeah, I found it to be more memorable. I don't make any Inception references because I don't remember it well enough. Uh, I really only remember the the one thing about it. I remember the one scene of Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the in the room fighting. <laughs> but it really made an impression. There was also uh, some unwritten rules news over the weekend. Did you have any thoughts about that one? We talked about the unwritten yeah. rules with the the bunting bunting to beat the shift earlier this year, right? That was another Astros story. Uh, Astros versus A's. Jed Lowry bunting. Yeah, Am I getting that right? Uh, to, to uh, with like a what up seven runs early in the game, first inning, um, and that was a a big controversy. This time, it was Colby Rasmus bunting on Colby Lewis, and uh, it was close. Colby Rasmus was up two nothing with two outs in the bottom of the fifth, and Colby Lewis was not happy about this. He said. I told Rasmus I didn't appreciate it. You're up by two runs with two outs, and you lay down a bunt. I don't think that's the way the game should be played. Uh, he said, I felt like if you have a situation where there's two outs, you're up two runs, you have gotten a hit earlier in the game off me. We are playing the shift, and he laid down a bunt basically simply for average. So he's accusing Colby Rasmus of hitting for average, which is not something that Colby Rasmus is, has done this season. Um, but this seems like a... A particularly egregious uh, over-invoking of an unwritten rule. Yeah, well, you know my philosophy of the unwritten rules. If if you take these guys in good faith that they actually believe that they are aggrieved and that this is somehow a classless move, then yeah, he looks like an idiot. Colby Lewis looks like an idiot. He makes no sense whatsoever. 
you want to hate him with all your heart and you wonder why they let these people out in public. Um, if you think that this is, you know, basically a form of a subtle form of uh, influencing the way the other team behaves in a way that will benefit you and that it is therefore um, up to the other team, Colby Rasmus team or the opposition to have the uh, sort of emotional strength of character to ignore it uh, and therefore regain the competitive advantage, uh, then this is all just part of the game. And it's a thing that you sort of can convince yourself that you actually love. So mm-hmm. uh, Colby Lewis, uh, yes, is taking is is pushing it to the point where it strains credibility. But um, if I, I sort of have that second philosophy and, where unwritten rules are essentially just a competitive move and I uh, enjoy it. So the more agreed, the more egregious they get, the less sense they make, uh, the, the, the more fun it is to study. I'll note also that um, Lewis's teammate, CJ Wilson, three years ago, uh, was complaining about the A's uh, and so-called lawyer ball because uh, as, as Wilson said at the time, if you you know if you don't throw them a strike, they're just going to take the walk. And he was saying that dismissively as though that was cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's a very, a very similar idea, uh, right? I mean, it's, it's like saying that even in, even in a competitive situation, even in a competitive game, there are certain styles of, of trying to win uh, that are normal and don't look funny at all and don't show anybody up and yet uh, are somehow inappropriate because they help the offense for no reason other than that they help the offense and that they annoy the pitching staff and the defense. Uh, that's the only crime is that it is sort of tedious for the opposing team. Um, and so sort of similar, I don't know if it's a staff thing, if this is a Rangers staff thing, if they spend a lot of time uh, complaining about the other team playing the game the wrong way or if it's a coincidence. Um, but... You know, mm-hmm. who knows? It's hard to imagine the, how Colby Lewis will reap the benefits of this. But <laughs> you know, if, if he keeps just one two ten hitter from dropping down a bunt against him in the future, it mm-hmm. probably will be worth right five hundred thousand dollars for a tenth of a win, Ben. <laughs> That's right. So, what are yeah. we discussing? Uh, so we had a BP um, a BP ballpark event yesterday in Oakland. It was great fun. I think we all had great fun. It was a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you weren't there to answer the questions. No. Not being BP and also <laughs> no. and not, uh, not living California. over here. And I was sitting up there answering all these questions and thinking just how unfair it was that you didn't have to answer them. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to make you answer them. Oh, I'm going to no. make you answer every every question <laughs> that we were asked. Oh, sounds awful. This all is right. why I left, so I wouldn't have to do this. All right. But, I mean, in all seriousness, if, I mean, if, if they were good questions if anybody, you know, a lot, many more people couldn't be there than could be there. So, mm-hmm. you know, if one person wants to know, maybe everybody wants to know. So I'm just going to to ask them. There's, I think there's only like five that okay. I remember. Okay. Um, all right. So here we go. Number one. Uh uh, do you think that there is actually an advantage to the A's being poor? Is it actually to their advantage that they're poor because they can't sign CC Sabathia um, and get stuck with CC Sabathia? Uh, does it actually force them to be a better team? And uh, are do we have the narrative all wrong? Um, I don't know whether it does anymore. Like if you suddenly gave the current A's 
front office a lot of money, I would think they'd still spend it as intelligently as anyone else would, and they'd be able to survive their mistakes better and and buy better players. I'm sure, you know, it could be, I guess, that they're they're really good at finding these ways to win without spending, and they're not necessarily that much better than everyone else at just paying for free agents. And so if you gave them all the money in the world, they would just sign the best available free agent. And like most free agents, he wouldn't be as good anymore, whereas now you're depriving them of those resources. So they are forced to go above and beyond and and make waiver claims and uh, minor league free agent signings and, and acquisitions for cash considerations that turn out to be brilliant. But you'd think that if they have some statistical or scouting insight that allows them to find guys like Jesse Chavez and Dan Otero and Brandon Moss, that that they could apply that same evaluation skill to free agents, right? And maybe get the ones who would age better or whatever. So I would I would think that that it has helped them and that they had to embrace these out of the box ideas and were an early adopter because they couldn't just sit back on their laurels and spend tons of money. But I'm sure if you gave Billy Bean tons of money, he'd, he'd be pretty good at spending that too. But it does seem like, I mean, having a small payroll and financial constraints does seem to lead to, I don't know, more innovative teams or more uh, analytically rigorous teams, at least in the past. Now maybe everyone is at that point, but but the early adopters seem to be, eh, well, I don't know. I guess there's an exception to, to that too, though, right? I mean, the Red Sox are not a, a tiny market team and they were as advanced as everyone and, and the Yankees are and the Cubs are. So I don't know, maybe Cubs. it's maybe the, the idea that the A's and the Rays just had to had to be more creative than everyone else because they couldn't spend as much as anyone else. You could, you can, I, I guess you could say that, that the A's were the first in going into it that heavily or that the Indians were, um, but at this point, I don't know that there's any real small market, big market distinction in terms of being smart about building a baseball team. So you think that the A's are, the current A's, the arguably best team in baseball A's, are simply much, much smarter than everybody else or much, much luckier than everybody else and that there's not some sort of systematic, systemic, I should say, advantage there that they're able to capture? Because the the... To, to go back to Moss, Moss had a quote, I think uh, I think talking to maybe Ken Rosenthal recently or somebody, yep. where he said that there was a big difference between all of his other stops and Oakland. Oakland was the first place where he was allowed to fail, that it wasn't like, oh, he had 15 batted bats and then he was back in the minors, uh, never to be heard from again. The a- But it's not like necessarily, we, we can't say for sure that the A's let him have more chances because they are smarter or that's their policy so much as they had no choice. They needed somebody. Moss got a chance there because they needed somebody and they couldn't, they didn't have a a player they'd spent $9 million on at every position. And Josh Donaldson, I mean, goodness gracious, the amount of time that they, that he got to fail in their system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still, even when he was, I mean, he, he was getting chances. I mean, he, he was hitting, he was so bad that they went and got Brandon Inch. Okay. <laughs> that's a that's an incredible thing to say about a person. That they had a guy who was so bad that they got a 200 hitter 
because he was five points better than what they could get out of Josh Donaldson. And yet they stuck. He with was him also worth like 10 wins in chemistry, though. Brandon Inge, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, they they had to stick with him, and they did stick with him. When their third baseman went down, they said, well, who's played you know the most third base? And it was, it was Donaldson. They didn't go out and get another third baseman. They just said, oh, that guy played in the Dominican. What the heck? And so when you look at their team right now, it's you know a huge part of why they're successful is that um, they've found guys who had failed elsewhere that are now stars with them. And I, I don't think that they would argue that they saw that coming from Donaldson or Moss. They probably saw you know something acceptable coming out of them. Um, so I don't know how many. I don't know if you give them credit for all ten wins that those two guys are going to produce for them this year. Um, but uh, but both of those guys had failed even. I don't know if this is true about Moss, but uh, I mean, certainly Donaldson failed even in their system. He wasn't just a guy that they found failing somewhere else and gave him a change of scenery. He he was basically failing in their system for a couple of years. Uh, that might not be true with Moss, but um, I mean, Moss, they sent him to AAA. Uh, you know, they uh, anyway, that, I don't know. So uh, I, I, I don't know what my point is. My point is, I guess, just that. Um, that I don't know that Moss and Donaldson would have would even if the Red Sox had discovered Moss and Donaldson, I don't know that you can say that Moss and Donaldson would be producing for the Red Sox right now. They might be producing for the A's right now. <laughs> if if they'd signed them, they might have released them three weeks later or three months or three years later and well, maybe, ended up with the A's yeah, anyway. Maybe maybe you could say that that having smart people matters more to a small market team or or small market teams enable smart people to make more of a difference, something like, I mean, like if I don't, I mean, the Red Sox have smart people and money and they've won a couple world series. So that works too. But I think, I think what I'm saying is, I think what I'm saying is that if baseball is inherently bananas, unpredictable, and you're a team that can sign free agents, you're basically going to try one thing per year at each position. And that's the thing that you're trying. You spent $12 million on him. You're not trying something else. You're trying the $12 million guy. And it might be that you're trying that guy for five years because you might have signed him for a five-year contract. Whereas if you're the A's or a team like the A's that doesn't have anything particularly invested in each position, you might try four things. And those none of those four things seem likely to work out, but baseball is ridiculous. And so you're basically getting four shots at having the ridiculous thing happen uh, for, for free instead of having the one shot at having the thing happen and then really no, uh, no creativity beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, I it, yeah, I, I think having a high payroll is some incentive not to be creative maybe, or, or maybe it's a recipe for ownership intervention in a way that gets in the way of, of what your baseball operations department is doing. Cause you're, I don't know, you're in a big market and there's a lot of pressure and maybe, maybe you have a more, meddlesome owner who's less willing to try experimental things because he can just buy the best player. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's been an advantage in, in certain ways. All right. Uh, second question. What do you think about the fact that the angels traded half their farm for Houston street? Uh, I thought that the Padres got a very good return for Houston street. Um, and again, I've been on a boat all weekend and haven't really studied it. But I mean, the Angels' farm system, of course, was you know rated as one of the lowest or the lowest, and so 
trading half of their farm system is not the same as trading some other team's half of farm system, but but it seemed to me like they they got a lot back from him. That was a, a very well done deal by whoever was doing it for San Diego, I thought. And are you, um, what about the, from the Angels' perspective, uh, trading what they had, the few pieces that they had to trade on bullpen help instead of starting pitching when it seems as though their bullpen is just fine and their starting pitcher is not, uh, starting pitching is not necessarily? Yeah, that seems kind of curious. <laughs> We've, We've, haven't we talked about Jerry Depoto's bullpen philosophy before and how he yeah, has said things about how... Don't spend how, anything on it. Right, don't spend anything on it, and, and these guys are interchangeable or whatever. And so, yeah, I, I don't I don't know why they would want to, to blow their few remaining prospects on Houston Street, who's been, who's been good, but, but yeah, ultimately, I don't know how much better that makes them. Unless you think there's some kind of... I don't know whether they think there's some kind of like mental block or something that develops when a team is not confident that it has a, a capital C closer who will always save the lead or something. But it seems seems curious if you don't have a lot to work with that that would have been the biggest need they identified. Uh, yeah, one one thing we should note is that uh, just for the record, it's always hard to know with the Angels whether the move right. reflects the GM's philosophy or the owner's. Because uh, they're a high payroll sport. team. Whim is. That's what we were just I saying. don't necessarily even mean whim. Whim is a, whim is a cheap word to use there, but uh, the owner's desires or the owner's uh, wishes. Mm-hmm. Wishes is a better word. Um, but yeah, my answer was similar to yours in that you, you uh, can't say half the farm. Uh, half the farm is not a consistent measure of quality. <laughs> right. uh, half the farm uh, is very different from team to team. I didn't think the Angels. Um, gave up anything they'll regret giving up. Uh, to me, those guys are all fairly overrated by the fact that they've been on a list, yes. uh, but they wouldn't be on a list if they were in most organizations, uh, and, and I won't miss any of them particularly. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, I think from the Padres' perspective, it's it's a fine haul. They got some role players. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, RJ and I were talking about the starter-reliever thing, and I just think that it, they you have to presume that they've spent the last month uh, really doing a good job of, of figuring out what the market is and what they're able to acquire with the pieces that they had. And they, I would imagine that they spent the month uh, shopping around with their $2.75, uh, trying to get a car uh, that they could you know, take to work. And uh, they realized there were no cars for $2.75. Mm-hmm. So rather than end the month with $2.75 in their pocket, they got a meal. And that's mm-hmm. not bad. Yeah. You got to eat too. You got to go to work, but you got to eat too. Maybe you so can also chose to eat. Maybe you can make the case that because they're in the position they're in, where they are quite likely to end up in a one-game playoff to make the division series. Maybe in that case, when you have so much riding on a single game, and maybe you go with a bullpen-heavy approach, maybe it's maybe they're thinking about that one game and thinking that it'd be nice to be able to turn an inning over to Houston Street instead of someone else in that one game, which if they win it, mm-hmm. they would raise their chances of winning the World Series significantly. So maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, good point. All right, um, number three, uh, somebody asked whether we have uh, measures of the ball, uh, spin and velocity and location of a, well, basically he was asking if we have hit FX um, and TrackMan and 
I explained it. We don't. Team <laughs> Super. We don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, he wanted to know, like, sort of uh, what, what what you would do with it if you had it, or something along those lines. I forget the specific question, but basically, uh, wanted to know whether um, uh, there would be measures about. Uh, I don't know. I don't. Uh, really, what I wanted to just talk about again. <laughs> we talked about this a couple hundred episodes ago. But uh, he was sort of suggesting this idea that we've talked about where you would measure um, hitting not based on what happened, uh, not on the results, mm-hmm. but on the probability of having those good results. Yep. And um, the reason that I, I'm bringing it up again with you is because, um, so imagine that, say, 10 years from now, we did have all this data, and imagine that when, um, uh, you know, Robinson Cano hits a line drive to left field, uh, and it goes down in the record books as a hit or an out, but it also goes down as, say, 0.72 hits because that's the expectation of a ball hit at that trajectory, that hard, um, into that part of the field, uh, is, say, it's 0.72 hits. And so then at the end of the year, you have, um, you know, Robinson Cano has a 340 batting average, but then he also has, uh, say, some other number that's like 132, and mm-hmm. that 132 is you know, what I'm talking about. It has no reflection on what actually happened, but on what should have happened based on all the balls he hit. Uh, which would you, which would you look at if given the choice? And if your answer is the, the, um, wacky one that I just described, uh, do you think that there would be backlash to that? Yeah, I think so. That, well, depends why, why you're looking at it. I mean, it kind of comes down to the, like, Fangraphs war versus baseball reference war for pitchers argument kind of, you know, like, uh, do you care about how many runs the guy gave up? Are you trying to say how valuable he was or are you interested in how valuable he probably would be if he were to play that season again or, or play the next season? It would it'd be talking about what a guy actually did versus what he should have done and there are different times when you would want to talk about each of those things, right? I think, I think I'd probably want to see the the one thirty two number, but I I would need to see both numbers. Um, and teams have those numbers already, and from what I understand, they're pretty useful because it's really imprecise what we have right now. Saying that something is a a line drive or a fly ball instead of saying that it had a a vertical angle of such and such a number and a horizontal angle of this or whatever. So, so yeah, I think there would probably be some resistance to that. You'd get the, you'd get the usual thing where people say that you're just making things up or it's an opinion. It's not actual performance. Um, and that seems to bother some people now with the stats that we currently kind of do this with. Maybe it would be a little bit better because it would be so precise and kind of, kind of intuitive, I guess, if you explain how it works and how you're looking at actual batted balls and seeing what usually happens to them. But but yeah, there'd be some resistance to that. I think I'd still want to see the, the cool new number. Uh, why would you want to see the old number? What, what would you get out of it? I mean, assuming that this isn't a situation where the number is diverging, I mean, because you always have to sort of check like, okay, well, is, is there a certain player whose number diverges from actual results significantly that makes you wonder whether there's something that the system isn't picking up or if there's a bias or something like that. Assuming that it's not that, what would you ever look at, say, a slash line for again? Hmm. Uh, well, I was thinking that you'd use it for determining 
value in retrospect, but I guess you could say that that's not even a more accurate representation of value in retrospect. Or I don't know, it, it's that old debate about if a guy has a fluky BABIP and and he has a high average that year, he was, you know, he actually got all those singles, so he was he sort of contributed that value, and yet maybe it was also due to luck, and so maybe he's not really contributing that value at all. Maybe he's just hitting the pop fly, and and the value is coming from somewhere nebulous out there in the universe that allowed his his batted ball to drop. So I could see where you'd want to maybe look at the the slash line just to see what actually happened, right? There are times when you want to talk about what happened, just describing, just in a descriptive sense rather than an analytical sense. But for analysis, you wouldn't? Probably not. I guess not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, and the last one that I'll, uh, I'll ask uh, is, is about you. Oh, no. Uh, what, is, yeah, what is your process for, uh, for continuing to find inspiration uh, for things to write about, for continuing to uh, uh, push yourself to think create, uh, creatively, um, and for staying kind of uh, up to date on, um, uh, you know, the the state of the science. I assume someone asked you what your process is, right? <laughs> Not what mine was. Somebody asked. Somebody <laughs> asked. Ben Lundberg stay so motivated. <laughs> yeah, somebody asked all of us. Uh huh. Um, hmm. That's tough. There are weeks when I have more topics I want to write about than there are days or hours. And there are weeks when I have nothing I want to write about and I feel like I'll never have something I want to write about again. Um, but I'm always interested in reading other people's work and I do try to keep up with that at the various sites. And often it will inspire me to do something different or something similar and I'll get ideas from that or... I'll watch highlights and something weird will happen and I'll wonder how weird it was and I'll want to look it up. Or I don't know, there are just certain subjects that appeal to me and I go back to them time after time and try to put a slightly new spin on them each time. But it, it is sort of endlessly fascinating to me, or at least it has been so far. Uh, so do you have an article for your first day at Grantland? Uh, can we read, can you read <laughs> your day at Grantland article on Monday? Uh, I will have something tomorrow on Tuesday and probably on on trades or the trade deadline, something related to that, and a couple of things later do you this have week. A, do you have a schedule? Do you have a schedule? Are you sort like of. Tuesdays and Thursdays? Or Yeah, I'll probably be Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then the third thing I write will be kind of on a flex schedule where maybe it'll be Wednesday or maybe it'll be Friday or depending on on news and is it i can't remember is it all baseball or you're gonna do like uh you're gonna are you gonna keep your body count thing going are you gonna do that again <laughs> uh right you're referring to my my post about longmire the amc tv show where i <laughs> counted up the number of murders there were um and it was a and completely... tried to extrapolate what that would mean and right and try, yeah extrapolated what that would actually mean to a community yes um yeah i'd like to do that again but that requires a lot of time, and I don't know how many how many shows I watch work that well with that idea. I might have to watch new shows, and then it would 
be a, an extraordinary investment of time for one post. But yeah, I'll be doing some some non-baseball stuff, like last week when I wrote about Snowpiercer, um, but on no set schedule whenever something occurs to me. And so can I ask you one last thing, or do you have to go? Uh, you can. Okay, so uh, this will be a spoiler. So if anybody has not seen Snowpiercer yet, <laughs> don't don't listen to the next, say, three minutes. Uh, but, uh, okay, so, all right, so they're gone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so in the scene in the classroom mm. uh, where the shooting happens, all the shooting happens, mm-hmm. we, don't see, we don't see any child shot. Nope. We don't see any child flee. We know, it seems to me that we know that they couldn't have gone to the front of the train, and we know that they probably didn't go to the back of the train because there was more shooting going on there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we also know that there is a real, that, that it is a serious, uh, violation of rules to shoot a front of the train passenger, uh, casually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that because a couple seconds later when he shoots one in the spa, uh, he's scolded for it, right? Yep. So what happened to those kids in that scene? <laughs> I, my recollection is that they they did just sort of disappear all of a sudden, right? They were clustered somewhere in that car, and then they were no longer anywhere. Um, so I don't know. There was one of the reasons I liked that movie was that a lot of it didn't make sense, and there were weird, surreal things just thrown in from time to time uh, that maybe would not have been included in a you know big budget summer blockbuster if it were made by a Western director. Um, and so I think, I, I think they just showing kids getting shot maybe was, was too much for the movie. Talking about babies being eaten was not, but actually showing them being shot maybe was, was more than audiences would stomach. And so they just kind of disappeared them. And it was probably not the weirdest thing about that movie. It was not completely logically consistent at all times, I don't think. And that was one of the reasons I liked it. So then you think shot and just not shown, basically. Uh, well, as, we, as far I mean, it's the be- the closest thing we have to an answer. Yeah. The closest thing we have to a resolution is the idea that shot but not shown for uh, taste reasons. I would think so, yes. And if they weren't shot, then they were they were killed when the train derailed, if that's any more comforting. Okay. And why do you think they left the teacher alone in the room to shoot uh, all the, the, the tail enders? Why didn't the... Eggman stay there. Why didn't why, why didn't the Eggman stay and shoot with her? I don't know. I don't, I don't know why. At after a certain point in the movie, none of the front section people seemed to be put out at all by the fact that there was like an armed gang of rear compartment people proceeding through the drain. I guess because they were they were all taking chronal or whatever it was. But um, but yes, there was. There was a marked disparity in how how certain people on the train reacted to other people on the train, and that was that was another aspect of the movie that <laughs> didn't didn't completely seem to be consistent to me, but uh, didn't really detract from my enjoyment all that much either. All right, Ben, we'll have a nice flight. Okay, uh, yeah, I've got to catch a plane now. Please support our sponsor. Baseball Reference, go to BaseballReference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And please send us emails for this week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com.